Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Now, hi to those watching this on Facebook and hi to those watching this on YouTube. First time we're going live uh, on, on the Facebooks. Now, look, if you are new to this podcast, we talk about property, mindset, business, philosophy, health, fitness, just everything kind of at the moment. But the main focus is property. And Shaz probably had the most listens of my podcast and uh, on my YouTube at some point, you know, at some point it was very highly rated. So I thought, listen, Let's bring him back on. And also, you know, people, if I like someone or I don't like someone, I make it very clear. And if I work with someone and they do a great job, then I want you to work with them as well. And I want you to, um, you know, work with people who are vetted. And, and that's kind of what my community is also about, which Shaz is a part of. So people, if you're looking for, you know, somewhere to network digitally, so from the comfort of your own home, sitting on your ass you need to join my community. And if you want somewhere that's got pre-vetted individuals, I've got someone social media expert, I've got a crypto guy, I've got Shaz, I've got a project manager joining, you know, to talk to people who are doing stuff you are doing and you want to do and people you can learn from. And actually, I'm in the group, so I'm adding value all the time. We do two (laughs) Zoom calls a month. That's a lot of Zoom calls, people, where we talk about all sorts of stuff, deal analysis we did, etc etc now before we get into this podcast hit subscribe and if you're on spotify go to the top and click on the little stars icon and leave a review i've got the most reviews of any property podcast in the uk on itunes but spotify only recently released it so please leave a review now shaz ahmed where's shaz he's sitting right here uh digitally Uh, do you want to just tell people what you do and, and whom that you are Absolutely. Thank you, Tej, for having me. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm Shaz Ahmed. I am quite a few things. So, uh, primarily, I'm a finance professional. Uh, I'm a mortgage broker. I work with property investors. So when they need the specialist finance, whether that's bridging, development, HMOs, anything funky that's not on the heist, really, that's where I step in and get them the best deals. Uh, along with that, I do a lot of public speaking, which comes in phases. Sometimes I'll do nothing for months, and sometimes I'll do three or four things in a month. Um and I've got my own little podcast, so it's not as well-reviewed or even reviewed at all as yours, but um, it's going well. It's, it's given me a chance to have more conversations with people that I wouldn't have normally. Okay. You know, your podcast isn't little. You've had some... Re- Ooh, transition. You've had some really good guests. You've had some very famous guests, you know, some big, big uh, followers, uh, various hair products that you, you're a fan of. <laughs> so uh, as a finance professional... You know, when property investors think about bridging or mortgages, it I don't know, it seems to be a little bit last minute. You know, oh, I need a mortgage. Oops, let me just, you know, get my finance sorted. What sort of stage should people be talking to you when they're sort of viewing and offering? Like, what sort of stage should they, should they talk to you? Uh, it's an interesting one, I think, side by side. So when you're looking at doing some deal stacking, perhaps before you've made the offer, because you don't want to waste anyone else's time, is come to a broker and say, look, Shaz or whoever your broker is, Sam Norris or anyone else, um, look, I've got this deal, there's, these are my numbers going in, this is my exit strategy, the numbers going out, what would the funding look like? 
And the main thing is I would say probably at least half the inquiries for bridging finance, they don't go anywhere because the investors don't have the money to go into the deal in the first place. So they realize very quickly they can't get as much as they thought because of how the interest works. Yeah, this is important. I think side by side is is the best time because I, I know with me, I'll text you sometimes before I even do a deal analysis. If I think it's slightly funky or weird or I'm like, oh, it's next to something that I know is probably not going to be... I'll just send it to you and you within like 10 seconds will say yes, no, or mm, might be a couple of lenders or mm, I need to ask them because it's such a weird thing. And that obviously saves me an hour of deal analysis that's going to get me nowhere. But it also, I suppose, builds up my knowledge because next time I'll know and be like, just to check. You say, yep. Yeah. And it's kind of um, onwards. And what you said there about interest is so important because, yeah, when you're doing your first deals and you're doing BRR and flips where everything's tight, missing a little bit of interest it can throw your deal out like big time especially if you need to then raise more money now yeah. you know on that note of bridging just to take a little side note there into bridging is bridging straightforward and easy to get for people who are starting out don't own their own resin it's their like first deal yeah look absolutely anyone can get bridging finance i've arranged finance for people who are on the verge of bankruptcy to pay off the bankruptcy debt they've got to pay off so yeah bridging is possible the key thing is the exit strategy all lenders are concerned about is how are you going to pay us back? How realistic and plausible is that? So, for example, if you had been bankrupt or had really bad credit and your exit strategy was to sell, then you don't have to have clean credit to sell a house. So it doesn't really matter. So really, yeah, the exit is key. But this is why you should work with a professional just to understand going in, going out. Can I come out of this deal? Am I leaving money in? All, all those kind of things before you go in. Ted's question for you, just because we spoke about this with a mutual friend on the weekend, um, about having funds in place. I see a lot of investors who, when you ask them about their source of funds, yeah, I'm doing a remortgage on my other house, I'm raising money elsewhere, but they haven't got the money. And I'm just like, look, until you have the money in your bank, it's probably not worth kind of trying to spend it because it doesn't exist yet. What, what do you think? I'm, I, I'm an advocate of that on paper. But in my mm-hmm. own experience, yeah, I've I've never done that. I've been like, yeah, let's exchange at auction, no money to do it. Let's mm-hmm. let's you know, let's buy let's put loads of offers in, no money to do it, because I know I can raise it. But yeah. I think the people you're speaking about can't raise it because they're not firstly they're not putting the effort in, they don't know how to do it, they haven't got a brand, you know, they haven't got experience, blah blah blah. blah. So it's a different situation where it's kinda of like this is the only source of funds. And yeah. I think it depends on the stage. If it's like kind of although having said that we both know that lenders will pull out at any moment for any reason at any stage no matter what it's cost you or them so i think people should probably still be active in terms of viewings and offers because it takes months to find a deal then it takes like months in conveyancing usually so you know they have time um but people need to balance it with i don't want to embarrass myself in front of the estate agent and the seller but then i also realize that property is so slow that I could kind of get there. So what you're saying is the safest on paper, correct tick way to do it. But I think in reality, people can't wait to get that equal yeah. balance because like it could take, yeah, it's just long and property's just so slow in it. Yes, so it is. That's what I say. And, uh, you know, speaking of the, the weekend, we were in uh, we were in Cardiff for Mr. D. Dudlow, our, our good mutual friend's 5D event, which was epic, and we were speaking. Actually, the first time we've spoken together like, properly, co-presented. Um, lots of good feedback. Uh, two people messaged me, so I suppose out of 80, that's all right. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, 
networking is a big part of, I mean, your brand, where Shaz, I suppose, stems yeah. from the fact that, you know, where is this guy? He's always networking. So how important is networking to you? What does the networking scene look? Talk to me about networking. Cool. So yeah, look, networking is very, very, very important. But I think not networking alone isn't going to get you any further in business. I mean, from my perspective, I'm in the service industry, so I'm there to provide a service or find people who may want to use my service. Um, and yeah, when I first started on my journey, as it were, using that word, um, I was at every event. I was at two, three events a month. I don't, you know, I'm from Wales. A lot of people don't even know that I'm actually from South Wales, not from Birmingham. But I travel to Birmingham, travel occasionally to London, do the events in South Wales, just to get myself out there, to be seen, to be consistent, you know, not to hand up my business cards to everyone because no one cares, but actually just to be the guy that does this thing and everyone knows who I am. Um, it has developed though, and again, I think it's developed because I'm at a different stage of, of my career and journey now, uh, where I'm not as new as I was. So personally... My personal opinion is I think a lot of the monthly networking events, especially those that are uh, done by the network, the education companies, I'm just not a big fan anymore. Um, it could be me being cynical, but I think, one, it's like they have a speaker circuit, they have a list of speakers. So once you've been, if you went to that event once a month for the year, you'd see the same people twice at least doing the same speech. Um, often they're trying to sell you or upsell you a course with a kind of call to action on the end. Um and I just find them a little bit dull and boring. Um, so I'm very much into events. You know, if someone's going to travel, if I'm going to go from Wales to Manchester to London, even to the Midlands, because, you know, time is money. Even if I'm going there, I want it to be an event. I want it to be memorable. I want the people there to be showing up to make an effort. I don't want their... A lot of people these days, I find, go to these monthly ones just to show up and be part of the community to put off actually investing. Because how much, how much can you learn without actually taking action? So I sound really miserable, cause, but networking has been really important. But what I would say is you need to do the physical networking along with the online networking. One without the other doesn't, I don't think really works. Um, and you've got to be consistent. It's no point going there for three months or even just six months. You're not going to get anything. You've got to keep going, keep showing up, build those relationships with the people there. And suddenly you'll see a switch from you trying to tell people what you do to people just knowing who you, what you do and then telling other people what you do because you're that guy. That guy. I, lo I love that. And I think I totally agree with you. Like I, I found that some events by education and just some events generally have disappeared. Like the ones I used to go to pre COVID. I mean, I was part of like PPN and I haven't really seen any PPNs apart from maybe one or two across the whole of the UK. And they used to be everywhere. Um, same with pins again, like I'm, maybe I'm just not in this, that thing, so I'm not seeing them, but it just feels like I'm not even seeing people there. Like, you know, you used to every week be like pictures online, stuff happening. Mm. It just feels like even past COVID, when you think we'd all want to get back out there and be in each other's space, like it's not happening. And the digital thing is, is definitely picking up, you know, I'm part of these, um, discord channel, I'm part of on discord channel. They're both for kind of crypto and wealth, but they're popping, you know, my own community, it's growing. It's, it's like people want the digitalness. I suppose they're just so used to it and the efficiency of like, well, for two years I've worked from here and I haven't had two hours traveling. Uh, do I really need to do that to talk to people I don't really want to talk to for most of it and maybe find one or two people? Whereas digitally, you can cherry pick and be like, oh yeah, I like Shaz's content, I'm gonna speak to him. Or oh, I don't like Ted's stuff, I'm gonna ignore. Like you can kind of be really specific with it. And I mean, 
you know, we're sort of halfway through 2022. Do you think by the end of this year, there won't really be any monthly networking events and, it, and it'll kind of be the odd quarterly big thing, if that? Uh, it's a tough one to say because for me personally, I am still a big fan of taking conversations offline. So if, if I have spoken to someone and we get on, I'm always like, okay, cool, should we catch up somewhere? And often Desert I'll tie it in or, with a network. You know, for you usually. Stats, standard. But it's often then to tie it in with a networking event and say, look, Let's just go there and do this. But yeah, I think monthly networking events, you know, you mentioned PIN and PPN. I know from personal experience, PIN, the numbers are down to less than half of what they used to be. Um, the people going there are still there to learn and network, but it's difficult because, look, COVID and all these Zoom stuff have taught us, let's say you've got a speaker who's normally based in Scotland, but now through virtual communities, you can have them speaking at an event. Why would... Why would you then want to go back and try? You'd never travel to Scotland, so you're now going to see them on a Zoom call. It's it's a tough one, but I think I'm now into like the the events. So whether it's quarterly or even you know once every six months, make it an event, make it something memorable. So you know, Property Circle, Savoy's, mm. D, um, Aaron Knightley, they've all got the right idea. They they're not as regular because look, the goods. The, there's a big difference between being knowledgeable about what you know and being a good speaker. Now, the good speakers tend to be the guys who can market themselves, or girls who can market themselves on social media, you know, talk a bit of, uh, online and stuff. If you did a monthly event, you're going to run out of that list quite quickly. There's not many people who are good at that. So, yeah, make it an event, make it memorable, and make people want to come. Yeah, and I think a lot of people who are knowledgeable don't bother learning public speaking. I'm not saying it's easy at all. But there are resources, there are books, like anything. And a lot of podcast, a lot of um, event hosts won't make the effort to make someone or help them become a good speaker because it's like, well, yeah. their sort of knowledge brings people here or whatever. It gets them in a the room, tickets are sold, whatever. And if they're a bit dry, okay, most people don't complain because they expect it. When someone's a really good speaker, they're like, whoa. But when they're shit or average, they're like, yeah, yeah, good. It was standard property event, standard event. And it's mm. like... Like, so public speaking is hard. For some people, it's harder than the actual knowledge that they have, like, to learn. But it makes a big, big difference. But I think that's also maybe putting people off is that, like you said, there's so much stuff online, whether it's in the UK or America, whatever, with people who are really good speakers digitally and know their stuff. And it's like, well, I could pay you 20 quid to be part of that community and sit here on my ass and save the two hours. Tra- so it kind of makes sense. But I mean... In your opinion, networking, you know, whether it's physical or whether it's digital, what are your top tips for people out there who are scared or who are beginners thinking, oh, I don't want to walk into a room or message someone I don't know? I'm exactly the same. In, uh, I'm, I'm not the same online. I'm, I'm a lot more confident behind a keyboard. But my first tip definitely is pre-networking. And I, I share this a lot. And this has worked for me two years ago, three years ago, and still works now. So in this day and age, when there is a networking event, whether it is online or it's going to be physical, you know, you know who's going to be going there from social media, there'll be people sharing stories and whatnot. Now, what I would do, and I call it pre-networking, is inbox. So if you see someone sharing about a specific event, get in the DMs. Hey, hey, Ted, I can see you know, you're know you going to this peak performance event. I'm going to be there too. Okay, cool. Yeah, you know, what, what do you do? This is what I do. It's just a quick break the ice type of intro. You do that five, six, seven times, suddenly there's seven people that you're not unfamiliar with when you get there. So if you're quite a shy, anxious person like I am, you know, you I just want to break the ice really early doors. 
So I'm comfortable when I get there. That's the first tip is pre-networking. And I think, I definitely think it works because it works for me, definitely. Um, I think second thing is maybe adopt a role. So the easiest one that I find is being the plug or being the connector. And we, and we joke about this a lot, but for me, it's so easy because if I'm going there and I don't really like talking about myself, believe it or not, but um, so I'll be like, oh, Ted, you know, how are you finding the event? Who are you looking to speak to today? It's quite, you know, that's a common networking question. What are you looking to get out of today? Who you want to speak to? And you might say, oh yeah, actually I could do it with speaking to an accountant. I've got an accountancy question. Fine. Well, I could say, okay, cool. You know, that guy over there, Paul, he's actually a really good accountant. Let me introduce you. Paul, this is Ted. Ted is Paul. I'll leave you guys together. And again, you do that a few times and it's perception. People think you know everyone and it's not about falsifying or anything, but actually it makes you, people feel like, you know, you, you know what you're on about. Two tips there. I, I like the plug one is really good because you've done it to me so many times. I just laugh because I'm like, oh, <laughs> push that. It's like and then so and then the pre networking, yeah, dude, so important. I used to do that all the time at the start. But you know what? Your brand can to an extent pre network for you, right? Because people already know yeah. who you are. Like when you walk in a room, oh, sh- you know, like people already recognize that from the brand and from the work you're already putting out there. And again, one of the big big benefits of social media is you're pre networking with everyone and anyone. And then you're post networking because they can go, oh, wow, I met him. And like, look at all this content he's got. Look at all the stuff that he's posting or whatever. So if we move um, from networking, a lot of people on Facebook, uh, beginners, etc., will say, oh, I need a broker without fees. I don't want to pay for a broker. What are your thoughts on that? Because I see you passive aggressively comment on some of them. <laughs> okay, so look, if you want to... I don't think there's anything wrong with it. However, I think I would always question the mindset of an investor who wants to save money to build their portfolio and their financial wealth. Um, I'm, I'm pretty transparent about fees that you pay, like lender, you pay me as a client and what lenders will pay me on the back end. So all brokers get what they call a procuration fee from the lender based on the size of the loan. Um, on bridging and development, actually, it's, it's quite decent. It's like 1% of the loan, sometimes even more. But on a mortgage, it's 0.45% of what you borrow. Now, where we are in South Wales, I mean, even in the Midlands, you know, deals are what, 150, 200 grand. It's, it's an okay bit of money, but actually for what, four, five, six weeks worth of work, all the admin, all the hours put in, you know, divide that by, get an hour, hourly kind of figure. Is it worth it? Or would you pay yourself that? Now, what you'll also find, and I'm gonna, not saying everyone does this, but the fee-free brokers don't charge a fee, their business model could be one of two things. Either they're based in London doing large deals, and I guess that works. They don't they don't have to charge a fee because the deals are much, much bigger. However, more commonly, they just work on a volume model. So they will, and I don't want to use the word disrespectfully, but they'll just churn business because they're not getting a fee on, on the front end. So for cash flow, the fee's on the back, on the completion end. Do you then think you'll get the care and attention, the out-of-hour support, um, you know, the the consultancy, as it were. I mean, sometimes I feel like I'm a counsellor when down valuations happen or lenders ask silly things. There's all this that goes on on the, on the backside. So there's no, I've got nothing against people don't charge a fee. It's, you know, people say charge of worth and whatnot. I think it's just a different business model. But you've got to understand why would someone not charge a fee? And the ones who charge a fee, I mean, I'm on the reverse edge, and I've said this to you sometimes, is um, some brokers charge ridiculous amounts. Like, for example... If I'm doing, let's say, a £500,000 bridging loan, okay, so I'm going to get 1% as a minimum. So I'm going to get £5,000 
from the lender as a minimum. Now, I may charge, I'm not going to say charging, you don't pay anything, but some, some investors, so typically my fee on a bridging loan is £1,000, right? So I charge the investor 1000 that's £6,000. Most brokers who will specialize in commercial bridging development finance will also charge a 1% on top of everything else. So that's another five grand. So that's 10 grand. Now, my personal thoughts on it is, have we actually done £10,000 worth of work? I don't think anyone has because that's, that's a lot of money. Um, and secondly, I, I, brokers who charge on a percentage basis, I never understand it because the amount of work surely is not proportionate to the size of the loan. So, well, yeah, it's, it's, everyone's got a different business model. But it's a good. It's a question to ask on day one to your to your broker or potential broker. Look, what's your fee structure? When do I pay it? Is it refundable? What happens if the case doesn't go ahead? But don't don't be an idiot and say, well, what are you getting paid from the lender? It's none of your concern because whether they were getting paid zero or a million, it doesn't affect what you're paying. So, yeah, I think you summed it up perfectly there. It's like you know, if you're not paying a fee, and like Shah said, that's what they're getting paid. Why are they going to give you personal attention? Why are they going to help you out extra? They're not. They're going to say, all right, you fit four lenders. Ooh, that one gives us a bigger proc fee, but it may not be as good for you, but eh, they're not going to know. Let's go for that one. I mean, I've I've heard stories, and I never used to believe this, but now well in the industry, it's like, especially with the commercial brokers, so lenders like Shawbrook and Hampshire Trust, who are pure, you know, more commercial lenders, slightly more premium rates. I've heard investors come to me and say that my whole portfolio is with Shawbrook and that's because my broker just for some reason recommended them and you look through it and it's because yeah clearly the property is higher they're getting paid more and so on and that's human nature like how can you blame them right if you're not getting paid a fee well then someone's got to pay them and yeah all, can I, you know can I, can I also just add in what, what one of the most common things that makes me laugh when people say it. so for, you know first time person speaking for the first time potentially we're going to do business together talk about fees and then they, they want to throw in, yeah, but I'll be doing lots of, lots of deals. Can you, can you give me, can you sort this out? And I'm just like, look, yeah, of course I'll give you a loyalty discount when you're loyal. But if, again, it's one of those things, man, it's like, if that's the first thing at the forefront of your mind, then are we actually going to have a longstanding relationship? Probably not. Yeah. Like I, I definitely, I see that. And I think it's tough because I remember being in that position where I would be like, oh yeah, but you know, don't want to pay this, don't want to do that. But actually you learn that when you pay for it, that when there's an exchange of value and it's a small, I think we're just generally smaller companies, maybe more one-on-one, -on -one, like a personal brand, you are going to get more from it. And also because you're paying, the person's kind of more liable to you. Whereas when you're not paying, it's kind of like, well, if they mess it up or I know there's obviously FCA and stuff like that, but if they mess it up or they're not that quick, you can't like, what, what are you going to do? Oh, I'm paying for this. Oh, no, you're not. So whereas when you pay for it, I think it holds someone liable as well. And honestly, the, the consultation that comes with it, I think is worth it with a really good broker because it makes or it make or breaks your deals. It gets you access to funding that others potentially don't have. And it gives you an, a genuinely good product versus, uh, yeah, this one pays us a bit more. So people, look, uh, you know, I'm not saying go pay any broker, but when it's a good broker, like I would encourage you to pay for it to get a better service. You don't want a bog standard. You fit a couple of boxes here, have one of the boxes on your way. Yeah, but I, 
I asked a lot of questions. So the questions you should be asking is, obviously ask them, you know, what is your fee structure and all the stuff that we've covered off, but also ask them, I'm going to be looking to purchase six buy-to-lets in the next year. Do you do buy-to-let mortgages? Do you, and I'm going to be doing a limited company. Is that something you do? I'm going to be doing service accommodation, social housing. Have you dealt with this before? So don't ask them, are you directly authorized, you know, or do you have access to 35 lenders? It means Jack. Ask them about the deals they're doing. So are they funding the type of deals you are planning to be giving them in the future? And also a lot of uh, brokers, they don't say it anymore. Always, I remember we used to take the piss out of this. Always you say, yeah, we're <laughs> whole of market brokers. And it's like, well, yeah, kind of everyone is. And it's like, everyone is like, like but they don't say it anymore. Have you noticed? They've like... It's, it's slowed down a little bit. I think the FCA is getting really harder on uh, marketing and promotions. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons on, on on my Instagram post, there's never a call to action. And actually, there's never anything really specific that could mm-hmm. put it in the, in the realm of marketing. Interesting. And, you know, what is the market like right now? So from a property investor's perspective, everyone knows it's batshit crazy, lack of stock. Everyone's still overpaying. Although some of the data does suggest that house prices are stalling a little bit, although everything's all dramatic. How are you finding the market from a broker's perspective? I suppose two two sides to the question from the lender's aspect um, and then also from like the client aspect. Sure. So from the lender side of things, everyone is really, 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 really slow right now. Um so we're talking, whereas before you might have got a lender update or the SLA, service level agreement, which means nothing, but you would have got maybe three days. So you could get an update twice a week if you were lucky. Uh, we're now on an average, I'd say across the board of about 10 to 14 days. So you could submit your application, pay your fees and not hear back for two weeks. It's ridiculous. So I think from an investor's point of view, you've then got to manage the estate agent on the other end because they're probably thinking, why have I not had a call for the valuation at least? So that's the first thing is everyone's really slow. And the thing with SLAs, I don't know what it annoys you, is they don't mean anything because they're always liquid. So a case today that you submitted today and the lender says, yeah, we're on a six-day SLA. You, I could call back on day six and they can say, yeah, well, today we're actually on 10 days. Suddenly you, you've lost four days. So it doesn't make any sense. I think lenders often make things harder for themselves or they cause more work for themselves. And this is why on LinkedIn, uh, I use LinkedIn more as a professional thing to kind of challenge lenders. I think they need to work smarter to underwrite things properly um, and just be more transparent. You know, yeah, you've got to underwrite. It's not obviously you're lending thousands, hundreds of thousands of pounds, so you want to make sure it's in the right hands. But do it in a way that's the most efficient way. Stop causing work and phone calls for yourself because this is where delays are happening. So I think, first of all, things are really slow. You've got to manage it with the agents. Um, <clears throat> rates. Rates are going up. It is what it is. I think had we had this conversation maybe six months ago, rates were really low and everyone's really happy and getting stuff in. Rates creeping up and the average kind of limited company buy-to-let rate is 3 to 3.5%. And then if you get anything specialist like a HMO or service accommodation, you're probably looking at 4 to 4.5%. Does, you know, you've got to stack your deals. Do your deals still work? I know some lenders... Um, even on these rates now, we're still stress testing on a future affordability basis. So if you've got a five-year product, which typically meant you could borrow more money if your rental wasn't so good, they're now saying, well, after five years, we think inflation is going to go up faster than rents. So now your product doesn't, your rent doesn't fit. We've got to lend you less money. It's all, it's all a big kind of, I don't think anyone knows what they're doing. They're just causing work for themselves. Uh, but rates are going up. 
you know that from a from a kind of deal perspective in terms of what I'm doing um I'm as busy as ever I'm always busy but I'm seeing a lot of remortgages so people coming to the end of deals looking to fix it as soon as possible I've had more than a handful of people who who are on an early repayment charge so their mortgage actually doesn't end till next year but they're so concerned they want to see what it would look like if they fixed it in now for 5 years or even longer so lenders have launched kind of 7 year fixed rates and 10 year fixed rates which tend to be sometimes cheaper than the 2 year fixed they've offered so they're keen to get you on the longer term fixed charging less for it but you've got to question yourself do you want the longer term stability for like a decade or do you want to want to review it in the short term i think or i don't know what you think maybe on a buy refurbish refinance when you've bought the worst house on the street you've made it the best house how quickly then are you going to be able to pull out more money from that do you think yeah i think i i tend to always go for five year fixes because I know you and me did some maths on this. Um, you went above and beyond your job, as you as you informed me. <laughs> and we, we kind of compared them. But I went a step ahead and said over 10 years, because then obviously five years, you've got two, of the fi- two switches. With a two-year, you've got five switches. So it just made sense. I looked at legal fees, valuation fees, product transfer fees. For, I think it was Kent Reliance I did the example on. I've done it with a few lenders. And five-year fixes over 10 years come out marginally cheaper. But also less work as one switch whereas with two it's every single time now i get people might want to sweat the asset and pull money out i don't want to i want to reduce the ltv if anything so give me less sort of chances like to pull money out i don't, I don't need that um and i think you know it, that's something that us as investors kind of have to do as well is like well let's plan it over 10 years and and you always say this right what's the cost of the mortgage not what the rate is or the fee what's the overall cost of the mortgage and a lot of investors don't look at that. Oh, yeah, but oh, that one I get, you know, 40 quid a month extra. Yeah, but in four years, you're going to get effed. So, um, yeah, yeah, I, I always like five-year fixes. I mean, the seven and 10-year stuff. I think Virgin, is it Virgin who are doing that? Oh, my God. We, Virgin, Lend Invest and some others. One thing I would say maybe with the cost thing as well is I'm not sure if a lot of brokers are sending out the comparisons. So, just to verbalize what I, what we mean there is let's say if you've got a choice between a two-year fix and a five-year fix and you said, look, two years is just not long enough, I'm going to go for five years. So that's, that's locked in. You generally always have a five-year fix option that has the lowest rate but probably a higher fee, um, which is month to month going to be cheaper than a five-year fix that might have a higher rate but actually has a lower fee, may have a free valuation, may have some cash back. Always ask your broker to compare both options because you could be paying back less money and interest over the five years. Now, not what is not better than the other. As an investor, your priority might be cash flow. So you want to save the £40 each month, for example. But it could be to save interest. So it's worth comparing both options. And, you know, do you get any sentiment from lenders? I know you mentioned briefly there about the inflation going up. But do you get any sentiment from lenders at the moment of where they see the market going in terms of, well, I suppose just, yeah, inflation rates, the, the living crisis, cost of living crisis. Do they give you any hints where the market could be going? Um, they don't. I mean, I try to go to some of these seminars online as much as I can to to get some CPD hours. But, um, yeah, they're not giving much away. But what they are doing is they are increasing their rates because they're saying the cost of money is getting higher. But um, I've got a personal concern that a lot of the lenders – I say a lot. It depends on how they're funded on the back end. The ones who aren't banks, for example, 
I can see them either struggling to lend for the next couple of months and just saying, look, we're close to business or reducing loan to values and things like that. So we know that in the first pandemic, when things shut down, there were, I think, three or four lenders who were who not funded as banks. They're funded by other investors or institutions just completely shut up shop for six to nine months as a business decision. Um, I can see that happening again because the funding isn't as secure as, as everyone thinks. Interesting. So that's, yeah, so potentially a, a sign there um, about what's happening in the future. Now, a question I think that maybe people have, but they don't really ask because they're too busy sort of doing finance stuff with a broker is, how does it work being a broker? Are you self-employed? Are you employed? What's your FCA licensee thing about? How does that work? Yeah, sure. So uh, when you become, so first of all, there's a difference between a mortgage broker and an advisor. Um, an advisor typically, although it's just words, but an advisor generally, someone who works um, for a specific lender or a bank and advises only on their products. Uh, a broker is someone who will look at the whole market and the 90 lenders that they have, or whatever, more than that, but the whole market and kind of advise you based on that. Now, when you get set up, even though buy-to-let business is unregulated, you still have to be registered with the FCA so they know what's going on and what you're doing uh, and the compliance side of things. So the company I work with is GPS Financial. They have the FCA license. I'm self-employed as a registered individual underneath them using their license to submit business. But yet you could be employed with an FCA firm. You could be self-employed as a registered individual. And then beyond that, if you wanted to say trade under, let's say, where's Shaz Mortgages, you could set up either directly with the FCA or you could set up as an appointed representative of GPS or even the trading style. So there's loads of different ways of doing it. What you should do is if you want to check that, if you're interested, is oh, when you go on a broker's website, go right down to the bottom and it will say so-and-so is regulated by the FCA. You will see so-and-so is an, is an appointed rep of so-and-so. And it just helps you understand who is pulling the strings, as it were. Mm, interesting. Okay. And, um, you know, lenders are, like we kind of said before, old school, super slow. You know, they just, yeah, I don't understand why they don't get with the times because they'd probably make more money. Because as much as cheap as us property investors are, I think a lot of us would pay a little bit more to deal with a tech-savvy, smart, quick-thinking company. Now, there are some lenders who claim to be that, but, you know, I could claim to be Thor or Iron Man, but, you know, I could dress like them, <laughs> but I'm not, you know? So, yeah, lenders. Yeah. Uh, are there any innovative products on the market, whether it's mortgage or lending or anything funky going on that, you know, I don't know, people listening might be able to take advantage of? Uh, yes, I can't tell you the name of the lender, but I was on the on a call a couple of weeks ago. Just what I've seen lenders doing is this whole thing about bridge to let, where look, if you're doing a buy, we and we've said this so many times. If you're doing a buy, refurbish, refinance, you can't use a mortgage on the front end for that middle bit, the B and the R, the renovation part, either cash investors or bridging finance. Right? I don't care if bridging costs more. You can't use a mortgage. It's mortgage fraud. End of story. Um. But there are lenders now looking to kind of reduce that cost or try and streamline it. So you've still got some lenders doing bridge to let, not many, but bridge to let essentially means you do one application, takes a little bit longer than a normal bridge would, but they underwrite it for the mortgage and the bridge. So you get your end value confirmed on day one. As soon as you've done the work, you call up, get a reinspection, they make sure you've done the work and you get the money. Um, it's good for risk averse investors or first time people doing it. 
And also you save a good two, three months on bridging interest because you're not waiting for the refinance. It's already been pre-agreed. That's happening. But beyond that, I've seen lenders. So Hampshire Trust, one of my favorite lenders, mentioned them all the time. They've got um, a product called a refurb in term. So what that means is if you're buying a property that needs work, as long as it's habitable and as long as the value says, yeah, the work can be done in th- within three months, they're happy to lend you money as long as they know what's going to be done. They won't lend it to you on the end value. They'll lend it on the purchase price. But it means you're not breaking any terms and conditions by having an empty property that's having work done to it. However, even beyond that, so I can't name this lender because it is under wraps. By the end of the year, what they're doing is it's similar to bridge to let, except they don't put you on the bridge first. They put you on a mortgage product first, confirm the end value and put a retention on until the work's been done. Once the work is done, you get the reinspection and they just give you the additional. I like that. And that, I think, will be really good. Is it a lender that is going to work with me? Yeah, but they're really slow. (laughs) Cool. So they're not going to work with me then. Um, It's like, what's the point of releasing a product like this if you're slow? It's just like, no one's going to, no one likes you still. You're that kid on the playground. Like, just move. Trust me. Trust me. Like, I'm quite outspoken when it comes to speaking to business development managers and telling them what's going on. So, and I said to people, look, if you're already on a 10-day SLA, what is the point of launching new products and new ranges? Because you currently can't cope anyway. Get get more staff. Well, get some um, computers or yeah, AI the, in. Like, we're in 2022, do you know what I mean? Like, bloody hell. Yeah. These companies, man, make yeah. me laugh. Ridiculous. Um, yeah. I think, you know, from an investor's perspective, it's good to know these kind of updates. And, you know, you know ask your broker. They should tell you kind of what the SLAs are. I always say that. And sometimes that affects which lender you choose because sometimes you're like, I haven't got 10 days. Like, uh-uh, I'm okay. I'm just going to someone else. Then. So like, and these bridge to let products, as great as they are, super slow, the lenders who offer them, or really, really difficult to be with. Um, or, and or, the end value is not actually real because they can come out and change it. So, yeah. As much as they say mm-hmm. guaranteed end val, I've had it where they come out at the end and say, hmm, hmm, the house was better than it was supposed to be. I suppose, <laughs> I suppose the main benefit is it is the same surveyor that's going to go out and do the reinspection. Yeah. So you've got. You've got the same that. unqualified, sorry, the same qualified Rick's um, surveyor to, to do it. That's <laughs> really good. So. Um, uh, have you ever had a surveyor on your podcast? Uh, no, but there is one I was trying to get on. He's a commercial surveyor. And there's another one. I think you, the handsome one, you, you sent me his. Um, Oh, yeah, Colin, that's it. I think, yes. I think I did. You know what? I'm going to send him a link. That reminds me because I'm now re-recording, so I'm going to send him a link um, to talk about it. But you know, I've spoken to surveyors off, you know, offline, and a lot of them will say yeah. how it is, and I'm like, yeah, pff, I, if, yeah, I know. Thanks. Like, cool. Not helpful, but mm. it's the reality of it. Um, but one thing that we've kind of discovered, I suppose, is that the same human, the same human surveyor could do two valuations for two different lenders and come with two different values. Um, and lenders yep. claim they don't tell surveyors what to say. So I suppose, what, one day he had oats for breakfast, one day was Weetabix, and then that sort of changed the vowel. Anyways, I'll let you all listening um, do your research on that. Now, Shaz, I think we've kind of reached um, towards the end of this podcast. But, 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 but before you go, I, uh, I'm going to do a little quick fire round with you, which... It's, it, some of the questions are, are maybe kind of more personal to you, right? Because I know you. So mm-hmm. let me just let's transition into the quick fire round. Are you ready for this? Quick fire round. So we're looking for quick answers here. Um, you know, if you have a particular story or something, you want to tell us, just go for it. There's no rules. Pizza or burger? 
<laughs> Burgers. Ooh, mortgage or bridge? Bridge pays better. Fair enough. Physical or digital? Physical networking. Sun or snow? Sun. Mac or PC? Oh, PC. Uh, Lamb or chicken? Chicken. It's the protein. Um, Beach or city? (laughs) Ah, ooh. Beach. Mm, I can see that. Working solo or working with a team? Working with a team, but I need to improve my people's <laughs> skills. I'm really self-aware. About, I'm really self-aware about this. I need to, you know, someone mentor me, please. Yeah, it's definitely not going to be me. So <laughs> someone send him a message. Uh, Newport <laughs> or Birmingham? Newport, it's home. Fair enough. I'd definitely say Birmingham. Uh, reading or listening, like audio books? Ah, uh, listening. Apple definitely. or Android? I have an Apple, but Android. You have an Apple for content because you're just a content creator. It's the camera. Um, what's yeah. the worst yeah. advice you've ever been given? Um, oh, it's not really a, a sentence, but the worst kind of advice in general I've been given is to mitigate all the risk and then take action. Uh, this is something that someone in the industry said, but for me, I'm learning just crack on. Um, and if what's what is the worst that could happen? I think is the best advice. But yeah, worst advice was. These are the risk factors. These are the bits that could fall apart. Are you still sure you want to do this? Interesting. So moving from maybe a more risk-averse, hugely pre-planning, maybe getting stuck in the analysis stage to the let's kind of do it as we go along. Still obviously managing risks, but being a bit more risky. Yeah, look, I mean, say, so when I left my last employed job, I did not have a job to go to. I didn't have a career to go to. So, but I still did it because I didn't want to do that job. It was as easy as that. So, but had I taken that advice, I would have been like, no, no, find another job first, go for the interview, get approved, and then go carry on. So, yeah, those kind of things. And who inspires you and why? Oh, my God. I'm going to say it again. Char- <laughs> Did, are you aware of a rapper called Charlie Scambino or Donald Glover? I've never <laughs> mentioned him, no. Listen, everyone should seek this guy out. So, obviously, he does, he does his singing now and he did his rapping before. But what I like about him is that he's good at different, various different things. So actor, writer, writer stand-up comic, all, all those different kind of disciplines. But when I say he's good, he's award-winning, top level at everything he does. And he chooses to flip between whatever he wants to do as and when he wants to do it. Um, also, I just relate to the story of uh, being too white for the black kids and all this kind of stuff. Like, I'm not, I'm not been bullied or anything, but I, I understand that. Well, you had dynamic. the experience in Merthyr, so... <laughs> yes of course we, yeah we, we shan't um recreate and actually a question sprung to mind i don't know what i'm asking but i kind of know what i want to know which is yeah social media mm-hmm. it's crazy i mean what are your general thoughts on social media and how real or or not real people are so i think that it's very easy to construct uh, an image on social media. Um, I think, I think, and I've used this phrase before: is you can control the narrative as, as much as you want. So, for example, my social media, because I can talk from my experience, it's very, very kind of um, business based. It's not business, but it's, but it's finance based, of course, with the odd personal posts, because I understand how that the whole thing works. However, 
because you know me personally, not much of my actual personal stuff goes on there because I don't see the need for potential clients to see that. Um, so yeah, I think it's very easy to do that. However, can you consistently over a year, two, three, four years, still be behind a facade? Possibly, but I think it's very difficult. You'd get find out, especially if you are doing socials as long as physical networking. You know, that it's very easy. I think, you know, people say about doing due diligence on companies' house a lot. I think yes and no, because even companies' house, when you when you run your own business, you know that it's not an exact reflection of what's going on. But um, yeah, just be careful who you trust and who you part money with. Obviously, speak to everyone. But if you've got an inner circle, if you've got your squad, kind of keep that close because you know those people in and out. Yeah, I agree. Lots of fakeries on social media. Lots of people pretending to be someone, something they're not. And Companies House is really hard. <sighs> Reviews can be a decent kind of source, but it is just really hard to find people you can and should trust. So, yeah, keep your squad close. Don't be afraid to cut mm-hmm. people. So, uh, Shaz, if people want to get a hold of you, what is the best <laughs> place to find them? Yeah. You. Uh, I would say use my Instagram as a starting point. On my profile, there's a link, and then you can just – there's my Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook – my contact information, and you can book a phone call. I charge for phone calls these days. However, if you send me a DM, I probably won't. I'm, I'm still not disciplined with that. But um, yeah, start with Instagram and get in touch that way. Well, guys, what you may find is the question you, you want to ask me might already have been answered with some of my posts. Um, also, key tip, when you are messaging people like Tej and maybe sometimes me, um, never ask if you can ask a question. Just ask the question, honestly, because I'm really busy. I imagine you are Tej. I imagine everyone else you know, is so yeah be polite but just ask the question don't ask yeah. if you can but ask. like Shaz said do some research first put some effort in help yourself you're not going to be helped if you don't help yourself like look at Shaz's post look at my posts there's a <laughs> lot of stuff there that can help you especially about lending Shaz's got stuff like can you get lending with bad credit what paperwork do you need you've written it in my book as well so please please for anyone mm-hmm. make the effort to read their profile first because I promise you People aren't going to want to help you if you don't help yourself. That's I think that's the blunt truth. And on that note, please give it up for yeah. Mr. Mr. Shazad Ahmed, everyone. Mr. Shazad Ahmed. So give him a follow on Instagram. He posts some really good content. Um, check out my community. Link is in the show notes. And I'll see you on the next podcast, people. Bye. Bye, Shaz. Bye.